I love that because it's all true. Right is like that. Well, uh, welcome to Grace, everybody. Good to be here, uh, and thanks for being here this weekend. Welcome everybody watch online as well. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Pastor Jeff. If I haven't met you before, if you've come in the last few weeks, uh, I'd love to connect with you and meet with you some. I've been traveling, so it's good to be home and uh, to be back at Grace. Hey, um, before I jump into our conversation, I want to just double click on this Power Kids stuff. Uh, children and youth are massive priorities for us at Grace Church. We make huge investments into them uh, for a bunch of reasons, but one is because uh, they're so teachable and so receptive to the gospel, but also because they they need uh, they need loving adults that invest in them, around them, and that's part of what a church family does. But I encourage you guys uh, to be open to working with our, our kids and youth and be praying. So tomorrow, uh, we have 170 uh, teenagers and adults leaving for a big youth conference in Indiana. And I'll actually, I'm going to go with them and be with them for the week too. Um, and that's a wonderful opportunity, a great investment. So be praying for them. God will uh, use that time in, in big ways in their lives, and I'm confident he will. I think tomorrow also we have like 30 fifth graders and adults headed off to inner city Philadelphia for a fifth grade missions trip. So that stuff is going on all the time at Grace. Uh, kids in Haiti and Mexico and camps and conferences and our weekly things. And I encourage you, uh, it, get your kids involved. If you're a teenager, if you're in high school, Wednesday nights are just for you, uh, seven o'clock in this room. Uh, if you're in junior high, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, there's stuff just for you over at the student center. And it's just a big value and a great investment and uh, encourage you to be a part of it. If you haven't volunteered yet for Bible camp or invest in some way, uh, encourage you to do that. So love those things. Those are big passions of our church and uh, excited to be a part of it. So we've been uh, in a series these last few weeks called The Most Interesting Man in the World and been taking a hard look at Jesus kind of specifically through the book of John. And uh, Ryan has been walking us through this. And if you missed any of the conversations he's had with you, they're all online. Go listen to them there. Their podcasts are on the app. Uh, but we've been kind of going like step by step through the book of John. And we chose the book of John because of the person of John. So John the Apostle uh, was Jesus's best friend. They were super close. In fact, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked to John and he said, John, will you, I want you to take care of my mom for me. You take care of Mary for me because I'm leaving the world. So they were that close. Like he would, they was, was family to Jesus. And John's also unique because of all the disciples, he's the only one that lived a full life. Uh, the others were all martyred because actually because they would not recant that Jesus rose again from the dead. So they actually died because they wouldn't deny that. John was exiled. He went through a lot of suffering, but he actually lived a full life. And so when he wrote his gospel, we call it the book of John, he was able to look back on the whole history of Jesus and also maybe even see what the other disciples wrote and kind of contribute to the record in that way. So uh, when the Holy Spirit inspired John, to write the book of John, you get a unique perspective on Jesus and kind of unique insight on his teaching and what he was like. In fact, uh, John does something that nobody else in the Bible does. At the end of his writing, he actually says kind of bluntly, this is why the Holy Spirit inspired me to write the things that I 
wrote, so he says this in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his, of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says there's a ton of other stuff that I, I didn't write down. I mean, we could go on and on and on. The Bible says there's not enough. If the oceans were made of ink, there wouldn't be enough to write down all the miraculous things that Jesus did. But John says, the Holy Spirit inspired me to choose these things specifically so that when you read them, you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have life, salvation through Christ. And so these, these miracles that are in John play a unique role for us. They delineate uh, Jesus not as just a good guy or prophet or teacher, but as Lord and Savior. And they're there to illustrate that so that we can kind of have that information, that evidence, so that we can decide to trust him as our Messiah and the Son of God. So we've been digging through that. Like I said, it's all out online if you want to catch up on it. This weekend, as we kind of move the, through the book a little bit more, we're going to land in John chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible... You can open up to John chapter 9. If you're using your phones, uh, use the, the Grace Church app is the easiest thing to use. If you don't have it, go to the App Store, search Grace Church 30, and you'll find it. But on the app, all the notes and the scripture is there. And if you want to use a physical Bible, uh, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 747 in those Bibles. So John chapter 9, uh, Jesus is... is uh, moving around with his disciples. He's teaching, he's interacting with them, and he's going to do something fascinating, and we're going to dig into the whole chapter here in a minute, but he's going he's gonna to heal a man born blind. And so that's what kind of starts in verse one and moves all the way through. But Jesus does something interesting in John chapter nine. He kind of does what John did at the end of chapter nine. He tells you exactly what he wants us to pick up through the miracle of the man born blind that he healed and he could see again. So at the very end of the chapter in verse 39 of chapter nine, uh, Jesus said this, he says, he said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And what Jesus is gonna do through this chapter is he's gonna walk his disciples and the man born blind and us through some truth about who he is. He says, for judgment, I came. I came to delineate between what is true and what is false. And that's what Jesus means by judgment. Now, it's important that we talk about this for a second because when we hear the word judgment in our North American ear, what we hear is judgmentalism, that Jesus came to be judgmental. And so that Jesus is going to look at us and he's going to be like, I hate your hair and I can't believe you wore that short and who wears flip-flops with jeans anymore, old man? Like we're going to hear judgmentalism, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He uses the word judgment in a legal sense. So when Jesus says judgment, what he means is this, I came to define the truth or to bring clarity to truth. I came to straighten some things out, Right? And what he does throughout the book, uh, without, throughout chapter nine, is he leans into some false teaching and some false ideas, and he b clarifies it. He brings truth out of it, and he says at the end of the book, "That's I actually came to do that in part. 
I came to bring clarity to things in a legal sense, not judgmentalism, but judgment, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, think of it this way. I don't know if you've ever gotten a speeding ticket. I've gotten 15 or 30 over my life. I got a little bit of a lead foot. But if you've ever gotten a speeding ticket, when you go before the judge, the judge is not going to be judgmental. You're not going to walk in before the judge and they're, they're going to look at you and say, you were speeding and you're a jerk and I hate your hair and I can't believe you cheer for Michigan. And I they're not going to do that, right? What they're going to do is they're going to pass judgment. They're going to cut through what is and what isn't and pass judgment. They're going to look at you and they're going to say, were you doing 85 and a 65, yes or no? I was, judge, but you got to understand, I was in a hurry and I was late and I was texting. And I was trying to watch a YouTube video and like I just lost track. And I, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, I don't care. I don't care what your rationale is. I don't care what you think is fine. I don't care why you justified what you did. I am here to pass judgment. Were you doing 85 and a 65, yes or no? Yes, you are guilty. It's clarity, it's definition. And Jesus says, that's why I came in part. And we don't talk about this a ton. In fact, to our Western ear, we don't like it too much. Because we like Jesus, the, the Jesus we like today is the all accepting Jesus. He loves us and he forgives us. He's full of grace and mercy and compassion. And that's true, but we take it too far then. And we say, well, and that means that he just accepts whatever I do. Whatever my opinion is, he's fine with. Whatever I want to do, he, he wants to help me do it. Whatever the, the, the trend of, is, uh, of the day is, Jesus will accept it and bless me in it and will support me as I do what I want to do. And Jesus would look at that false way of thinking and say, actually, no. I came to bring clarity. I love you and I am full of grace, mercy, and compassion, but I love you enough to tell you the truth, no. And it doesn't matter why, or what you think or your opinion. I'm not being judgmental. I don't hate your guts and think you're dumb. But let's bring truth. Let's bring clarity to the situation. Okay? So Jesus says that. And, and, and he's going to walk us through this series of events which he preordained to happen. We're going to see that in a minute. And, he, and he's, at the end he's going to say this is actually why I did that. So that when you guys look at this, there's clarity and clarity specifically about whether I am the Messiah, the son of God or not, and whether you are interacting with me that way or not. Okay. So jump back to the beginning of the story. This is kind of the end. Jump back to the beginning and it starts to play out. So verse one, chapter nine, the book of John, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, that's a fascinating response. The disciples were raised in a certain culture. It was a religious culture and kind of a secular subculture, but it's just the way that they were taught to think. And part of how they were taught to think was this, that if something's wrong with you, it's your fault and God is punishing you. So if you were born blind or you lost your job or you have a bad marriage or your kid rebelled, it's because you screwed up. 
Why is that kid struggling? Is it the parent's fault or is the kid just a jerk, right? Why did that happen? What did they do wrong? How did they not keep the rules? How did they not honor the religion? What did they mess up that caused this to happen? That's what the disciples, that's how they think. And that's what they ask. Jesus, that guy was born blind. Whose fault is it? Is it his fault? Did he sin while he was in the womb? Or his parents' fault that they got punished and were born, had a blind kid? And Jesus immediately leans into that and he says, he answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is really pressing in to kind of a, a cultural way of thinking with his disciples. And he's, he's like, neither. It's not his sin. It's not his parents' sin. It's that God has a bigger plan and God wants to display his power in his life. Now, this is the first delineation that Jesus brings in in, in the course of this, this record. Remember, he came to bring clarity, definition. And so he leans into a false teaching and a false belief system. And the false teaching, to put it kind of in a, a modern way of speaking, is this. It's the false teaching that the pain in our lives is evidence of the absence of God's love in our lives. When I have pain, that means that God is not present. If God loves me, this horrible thing would not have happened to me. If God listened to my prayers, he would take my sickness away. If God cared about me, he wouldn't, he would, he wouldn't have put me in this bad marriage. If God loved me, then all of my dreams would come true. And that fact that they didn't, and she broke up with me, and I got cut, and I didn't get into this school, and... If God loved me, I would be painless in my life. And the fact that there is pain, it's got to be somebody's fault, even if it's God's. Who messed up that allowed this to happen? We don't like pain, do we? I don't like pain. And when I'm in pain, I want out of pain as fast as possible. I remember years and years ago, I was in Oklahoma City, and I was teaching out there, and while I was there, a tooth, my tooth cracked. I don't know if you ever had that happen. One of my molars cracked, and oh man, it hurt so bad, but I was kind of stuck there because I had to finish doing what I was doing. So I was out there for a few days, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, and so I, I finally get to come home, and I hop on an airplane, and I have to fly to Dallas and do a quick layover, and I got in the plane, and the pressure changed, and Oh, it's just miserable. So I got to Dallas and I called Heidi and I said, listen, I said, I'm miserable. I said, I want you to call our friend who's a dentist. And I said, you tell him when I get home, he is to meet me at his office. And she goes, well, you're not going to get home till late. I said, I don't care. You tell him his pastor said to get out of bed and meet me at his office. I want medicine in my face when I get home. And she said, well, what if I can't get a hold of him? I said, you're stronger than he is. You drag him and you tell him. And so I did. I flew home. I got in Cleveland and our friend, he, I went right to his office and he met me right there. And he goes, what's wrong? I said, I don't know, but you put medicine in my face now. Do something to my face because I'm in 
pain, I want out of pain. And he took care of me and got me all healed up. But all the misery, when we're in pain, I want my pain to go away. I don't care how it goes away. Make it go away. Get me out of this pain. Fix it. Stop it. See, I want it to go away. And if God loved me, he would do that. If God loved me, he would have never allowed this. I hate this pain. Now, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, and asks, guys, you got this thing all wrong. Whose fault is it? Nobody. I'm going to use his pain to display my power. If you knew that your pain was going to be used to proclaim Christ to billions of people, could you endure it differently? If you knew that your pain was going to be a story that made the Bible, and 2,000 years later we'd be talking about your pain to explain the heart and mind, would you endure it differently? And one of the first things Jesus leans into is he would say, the absence of pain is not the absence of me. That your pain becomes a platform for my glory. Your pain becomes my story in your life. My favorite quote from C.S. Lewis is this. He says, pain exists, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Your pain is not the evidence of the absence of God. Your pain is the platform for the power of God to be displayed. It's a false teacher that would say, a God who loves you will never let you hurt. It's a false teacher, a heretic is the old-fashioned word for it, that would say that all God ever wants for you is to be happy. It's a false mindset that would say, if God doesn't make my pain go away, it means he isn't hearing my prayer. And Jesus immediately leans into that and says, nope, I'm actually not like that at all. And, and a clarity that I want to bring is that my people embrace their pain differently. My people look at their pain as a platform to proclaim and to illustrate my love. And he teaches that to his disciples out the gate. He continues then, and, and Jesus, as he teaches his disciples this, that he's kind of surrounded by these people. Think of it as a big open area. And this man born blind, he, he, the guy can't see Jesus, so Jesus goes to him. And the Bible says as having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Salam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. This is one of the weirdest parts of the whole Bible to me. So he walks up to the guy and he, he looks at him and he decides to heal him because he was born blind so that God's power might be displayed in him. And the way he chooses to heal him is disgusting. Let's just be honest about it. Jesus spit on the ground. Now, <clears throat> I just got back from the Middle East. 
and the Middle East is a very arid place. You don't have like a lot of spare saliva laying around in the Middle East. The dust there is very, very fine. So for Jesus to make mud, this wasn't like a poo, here's some mud. <laughs> Jesus had to work this up, right? He, spit, he had to get enough saliva out to make mud, and then he takes the spit-mud mixture, I love the word the Bible uses, and he anoints his eyes. The term anoint in the Bible is a fascinating term. When the Bible, or when God would say to anoint, to anoint someone with oil to designate them as a king, or later on the book of James says, if you're sick and you don't know why, you call the elders and they will anoint you and pray over you. When you anoint someone in the scripture, what you're doing is you're symbolically setting them apart for the glory of God. Jesus anoints grossly with spit and mud and he anoints his eyes. He says, go wash and you'll receive your sight. The guy did it. He came back seeing. It's a fascinating way that Jesus decided to heal him. He didn't have to do it that way. There's other parts of the Bible where the, the dad just had enough faith and God healed a servant. Another part of the Bible where the lady just touched the hem of Jesus's garment and Jesus healed her. This one, he works it up and spits it on the ground and makes mud What's he leaning into? What's he trying to help us? Here's the false teaching I think Jesus is working against in our way of saying it. The false teaching is that Jesus will bring healing in my way, my time, and at my place. <clears throat> Jesus, I want you to heal this aspect of my life, but I want you to do it the way that I want it done. And I want it done now. And I want it done so that people will see it. It's the, it's the mindset that sends people to the faith healer. I, for 500 bucks, I can get smacked in the forehead and all my problems go away tonight. See, I want healed in my time, my place, and my way. Jesus, fix this problem in my life. I want you to heal me my way. You gotta, we got a rough marriage. Jesus, you gotta fix her. Even though there's two of us, you gotta fix her. If, if you could maybe, <clears throat> I don't know, straighten her out, make her more compliant. If you got to strike her down, that's okay. I mean, I'm willing to live with it, but you got to fix her. Jesus, you got to fix him. If he could be less sarcastic and, and more engaged and, and while you're at it, if you could just maybe bring the hair back and shrink the belly a little bit, I would be okay with that. You got to fix my kid. My kid, my, not only does my kid have to love you, but they have to interact with me this way. They gotta have this personality and they gotta value these things and they gotta be this person and let them make varsity too. See? My experience in life as a follower of Jesus and probably as just being a pastor a long time now is that oftentimes our deep encounters with God are messy and unexpected. I don't always like the way that Jesus chooses to heal. Sometimes God heals us by revealing our sin. 
God will bring our sin and expose it publicly. It's never the devil who exposes your sin. It's only God. It's God who brings the fruitless deeds of darkness into the light. The devil wants you to hide your sin because it will cause a spiritual cancer and he wants to kill you with it. He doesn't want it confessed. Sometimes God heals us by exposing our sin. Sometimes God heals us by stripping our pride. <clears throat> Maybe the best thing that ever happened to you is you lost that big job with that big title. Maybe the best thing God ever did for you is let you get cut. Maybe the greatest God, gift God ever gave you was your health problem. Sometimes God heals us by taking away the very thing that we held on to that made us self-sufficient before God. Sometimes God heals us by killing our dreams. That breakup may be the greatest gift God ever gave you. We had our life mapped out. We were really sure that it, our kids were gonna do this and then they were gonna do this and they were gonna do this and none of that's happening. Maybe God is working in the life of your children in a deeper way than you ever could have hoped to. Sometimes God even heals us physically by allowing us to die physically. My father was sick his whole life. He's not now. We prayed for healing. He got it. Not the way I thought or wanted. I had a way and I had a place and I had a time. But God had a muddy miracle for me. Sometimes confessing my sin is just disgusting, but it's miraculous. Sometimes dealing with bad habits is just disgusting, but it's miraculous. Sometimes actually living out the scripture, actually being a submissive spouse, actually living a generous life, actually being a friend to sinners. Sometimes it's disgusting, but it's miraculous, see. Jesus leans in, and he leans into this false mindset that says there's a prescription, there's a formula. If this guy would have just got his act together and his parents would have just been more religious, but instead it was a muddy, gross miracle that absolutely altered the course of his life, and we'll see in a minute even his eternal destiny. The miracle is real and legit. In fact, people notice if you go to verse 8, chapter 9 of John, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it's he. Others said, no, it just looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and, and, and wash. So I went and I washed and received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. And it's at this point of the story that the cynics and the critics and the skeptics enter. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind now it was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him uh, how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I watched and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. 
But others said, how can a man who was a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? Verse 20, the parents answered, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. There's this very fascinating transition that happens in the story where the cynics and the skeptics and the critics, the Pharisees, call him in and say, there's no way, there's no way that Jesus violated a rule. See, you got healed by the wrong guy in the wrong way. You were supposed to get your healing by going to the synagogue more. You were supposed to get your healing by keeping the Sabbath religiously. You were supposed to get your healing by tithing. And you didn't do any of that. You're saying some guy came up, spit, made mud, and wiped it on your eyes. You got healed. No way. Wrong guy, wrong way. You're making this up. Parents come in. Is this your son? Yeah. Yeah, he's our son. Was he born blind? Or he's really good at faking. I mean, his whole life, right? So yeah, he was born blind. How'd he get healed? We don't know. And at the end of the conversation, they say something fascinating. We don't know how he got healed. Ask him he's an adult. And what they're doing in that statement is fascinating. They're actually shifting the blame for the healing to their son because they don't want to answer the question. The Bible tells us that this is exactly what they did in the next verse, verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. His parents were embarrassed that the wrong guy healed their son in the wrong way. And so they looked at the Pharisees and said, we ask him, he's an adult. We're not responsible for his healing. You got to ask him. We're not responsible for what he believes. You should ask him. I think this is one of the most tragic scenes in the whole Bible. That these parents, I think, had two things going on. One, I think they were so pressured to believe that their son was blind because of their sin. Their whole life, his whole life. Man, you got the blind kid? How'd you screw him up? Your kid rebelled? How did you parent poorly? Your kid is struggling with their faith? You must not have had good devotions. See, their whole life, it was their fault. And their whole life, they had been taught that if they got their act together. You, you need to be more religious. You need to give more money. You need to stop smoking, drinking, chewing, date girls who do. You, you, need to, you need to knock it off. And maybe, maybe if you come to the synagogue, we can get a healing for your son. All that cultural pressure now is on them. So much so that their son... Listen, 
is healed. The prayer they have prayed their whole life is answered and they're embarrassed by the way it was answered. The false teaching that Jesus is pressing into is this, and I said this in kind of a modern way, but it's this idea that the supernatural is for the uneducated or the superstitious. Because I think a lot of times we're embarrassed when God answers our prayer. And we're embarrassed and we're ashamed that we received a muddy miracle so much so that we don't praise God for it. I prayed my whole life that they would get sober. Prayed and prayed and prayed that they would get sober. And now their hearts changed and their minds renewed and they found their sobriety. Thank God for AA. And I love AA, but AA doesn't change somebody's soul. We prayed for years that God would fix our marriage. We would so, fight like cats and dogs, and God, you gotta fix my marriage. And I begged and begged and begged. And man, we're at the best place we've ever been in our marriage. Thank God we found that counselor. He's amazing. See. We prayed and prayed for a job. I got downsized. My company got, you know, the jobs got exported. Need a job, need a job, need a job. Man, I finally found the job. <laughs> I'm so glad I was on LinkedIn. See. My kid's rebelling. He can't find his way. He doesn't know what to get into. Woo! So glad I got him in the sports. Because it sounds old-fashioned. What kind of educated, modern, enlightened person believes that God does muddy miracles? It's the wrong way by the wrong guy. And I actually, even though I prayed and prayed and prayed, I actually don't want to be associated with the God of the answer. Because it kind of embarrasses me a little bit. My whole life, I've been looking for meaning and fulfillment and hope. Man, I'm glad I found CrossFit. See? I wrote this down in our notes. When you pray, you need to be bold in your praise. We pray, we need to be bold in our praise. If you're going to pray big, praise big. And I'm not talking about being weird. I'm not talking about almost everybody on social media. I'm not talking about being weird. I'm talking about being bold. If you're going to pray big, you need to praise big. And God uses doctors, and he uses AA, and he uses CrossFit, and he uses athletics, and absolutely no question about it. But those things do not change your soul. Nothing on the planet changes your soul. Only Christ can do that. See? And to deny him the glory. See? How'd your son receive sight? Um, ask, ask, ask him. In frustration, the cynics... And the critics, 
bring him in again. And they bring him in a second time in verse 24. So the second time they called the man in who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. It's fascinating. They stop him and say, listen, you give credit to what we said to give credit to. God, God didn't heal you. You found a good doctor. God didn't give you a job. You made a good connection. God didn't, God didn't fix your relationship with your kids. You read the right book. You stop it. You give glory to what we said to give glory to because there's no way some guy spit and made mud and wiped it on your eyes and fixed you. That's what they're saying. And I love the man's response, verse 25. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. Whether he's a sinner or not, I, I, I have no idea. I'm not a theologian. I don't have, these Pharisees had the ancient equivalent of a PhD. I'm not enlightened. I don't have a piece of paper to hang on my wall. This is what I know. I was blind and now I'm not. That's what I know. Guys, listen, you don't have to defend God. You don't have to defend God. You don't have to explain God. The Bible never, Jesus never says, defend me, argue on my behalf. You don't do that. He also never says, explain me. You better, when somebody says, well, what's the ori origin of DNA? You better have an answer. He never says that. This is what he says. He doesn't say defend me. He doesn't say explain me. He says, all you got to do is be always be ready to give the reason for the hope that's within you. Your story is your message. You don't need to defend God. God will defend himself. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God will defend himself. You don't need to explain God. He has built explanation into our very existence. Romans 1 says that creation itself speaks to the, to the creator. You find God, just look around. He, it's all woven into our existence. You don't need to explain God. But a cynic, a cynic is always gonna be cynical. A cynical worldview is one of the most cowardly worldviews on planet Earth because you don't have to believe, you don't have to create, you don't have to accomplish anything. All you gotta be is a jerk. A skeptic is always gonna be a skeptic. It's just a form of cynicism. That's never gonna work. That's dumb. You should have done it that way. Really, chicken? You never tried anything in your life. All you do is Monday morning quarterback, whatever. And the Bible says they're not going to change. Jesus says specifically to his followers, don't cast your pearls before swine. You don't even argue with them. Their hearts are hard. Their minds are even harder. You don't have to defend. You don't have to argue. A cynic's going to be cynical. A critic's going to be critical. A skeptic's going to be skeptical. Taylor Swift said it well. A hater's going to hate. <laughs> My job is not to change them. My job is to tell the reason why I believe what I believe. I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. I'm just a guy. 
What I know is that I tried everything to get sober and now I am after Jesus. What I know is my first marriage tanked and my second one is a lie because we wove Christ into the middle of it. What I know is I prayed for my kid and they went to college and they found some godly friends and they're a different person than they used to be. What I know is that I needed work and I got it. What I know is I went to the doctor and nobody could figure out what was wrong with me and now I'm fine. I, I have no idea how it happened. I just know that I was blind and now I can see. You explain it. See. And your story is your answer. And you're not being a, don't be a jerk. But he just answered him. He wasn't being a jerk. He's like, I, I don't know, man. Two hours ago, I couldn't see. Some guy spit on me. <laughs> and now I can't. That's what I know. And that's the only argument that I have. It's the only defense that I have about whether Jesus is a prophet or he is a sinner. The cynics and the skeptics responded the way that they do. They answered him. This is fascinating. Verse 34. You were born into utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. The most powerful thing that had ever been in their presence, they totally rejected and threw away. It did, wrong guy, wrong way. Get out. You don't fit in our box. Verse 35. When Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Look at this, verse 36. He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And I love verse 38. He looks at Jesus, he said, this, then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. It's fascinating. Remember, this guy had never seen Jesus. He heard him. He sensed him. He'd never seen him. And he gets cast out, and Jesus finds him, and Jesus looks at him, and in the essence says this, do you believe I'm the Messiah, the Son of God? Do you believe in the Messiah, the Son of God? And he looks and says, I don't know who he is. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're talking to him. It's me. You're, you hear my voice? Yeah. It's me. And the blind man looked at Jesus and said, if you're the Messiah, the Son of God, and you did this in my life, I believe you. And I worship you. I do not know the Bible. I don't understand what happened. I've never gone to church. I'm not in a life group. I'm a beggar. I'm not a consistent giver. All I know is that something that I asked for my whole life happened to me. And if it came from you, then I have decided that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Ready? This is verse 38. This is verse 38. Verse 39, Jesus said, 
for judgment I came into this world, that those who did not see may see and those who, not, who see may become blind. Jesus looked at him and said, that's why I came here. I came to cut through all this nonsense. I came to break it down. And I came that those people who, who think they have it all together will realize that they don't. And those people who have a simple faith in some version of a broken life who've been feeling me tug at their heart, who've been wondering if they should try something new, who came to church as a last resort, who hear my voice can see my face. And they can decide, not that I'm a life improvement, not that I'm a healthy part of spirituality, but that I am the Messiah the Son of God, and through their belief, have life. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The spiritually blind are the Pharisees. The spiritually blind are people who put barriers between themselves and God. The spiritually blind are the people who'd say, you want to know God? You want to have a miracle in your life? Send in your $1,000. Papa Bear needs a new jet. By the way, I don't need a jet, but a quality used car I'd be very open to right now. Right? You got you to gotta, you gotta send in your money. The spiritually blind are those who put a barrier up. The spiritually blind who would teach are those who would teach that religion is the path to salvation. You want to go to heaven, you better come to church on Wednesday, Sunday, Sunday night, maybe Tuesday morning. You better say this prayer in this way. You better put this much offering in the offering plate. You better be involved in these things. If you're religious, if you get your form down perfectly, you'll get your blessing. The spiritually blind are those who believe that they have arrived spiritually. I figured this out, man. I know the Bible. I was raised in the church. I'm often looked to for leadership. And they've lost the broken, humble, grateful, passion for God and love for people. Those who are blind who can now see are those who embrace the will of God. I, I don't know why God chose me for this, but he did. And my passion is not to get out of it. My passion is to figure out how to use the platform of my pain to bring glory to God. Those who can see, praise God for muddy miracles. Best thing that ever happened in my life, as I got saved. Best thing that ever happened to me is my sin got exposed. Those who, are, who can see, live by faith. I can't explain it, I just know my story. 
Well, you're not enlightened and you're ignorant or you're, okay, whatever, man. I choose to believe what I cannot and will never fully understand because I was, I was this way and now I'm this way and I tried everything on planet earth and when I finally yielded to Jesus, I was thinking through how to kind of take this home. And so I was, I was thinking of where to land it. And I, I started to look at the passage and I started to look at the people in the passage. And so if you, if you kind of dissect this out a little bit, there's kind of three sets of people, right? So there's like the Pharisees, there's the parents, and then there's like the blind guy. And those are like the main characters, so to say, in, in the passage. And, and so I was, I was thinking about like describing a Pharisee and describing the parents and describing the blind guy. And so I was, I was personalizing this. I always tell young preachers, you should never preach anything until God's convicted you of it yourself. And so I was kind of following that rule and I was like, oh man, I have all three of these people in me. I got some Pharisee in me, I got some parents in me, and hopefully I got some blind guy in me. The Pharisee in me looks like this. You know what Pharisees are best at? Two things, they're cynics. Oh, they will, they will let you know how you're doing, what you're doing wrong, and why what you're trying to do is so dumb. They just don't have the courage to be a part of it. And in their cynicism, what they do, I see this in myself a lot. What Pharisees are best at is seeing sin in you and not in themselves. I do that a lot. Your sexual immorality is way worse than mine. You actually do that stuff. I just think about it. You, you look at porn. I just remember it. See, it's very pharisaical. You, me, and Jesus would say, you know, Jeff, I, I came to, for judgment on that. Let, let's, let's not ask if they're doing 95 and you're doing 85. Let's ask what I said. Is there a hint of sexual immorality in your life? Yes or no? Let's see. You are so, you're like a rich, greedy jerk. You don't even tithe. I tithe. Plus, I give to the financial campaigns. Jeff, you have so much money. Is that actually generous for you or is it just a line item on your budget? Because I actually didn't say tithe. I said Live generously. Are you living generously or did you just work your budget around it? I'm very good at seeing your lack of generosity. Very good at elevating my acts of generosity. Doesn't mean our hearts aren't in exactly the same place. See, Jesus would say, I came to help you straighten that out, bud, because I love you. I'm not being judgmental. I love you, but let, let's call this for what it is. 
I see the parents in myself too. Because it, it's, it's a little bit, it's hard sometimes, you know. I, I'm enlightened, I'm highly educated. I have a PhD. And I, I hang out with guys like that. And, and they, they, you really believe in the literal word of God? Well, yeah, you know, pretty much, sure, kind of, yep. You believe in a literal six-day creation? Well, yeah. It's hard sometimes. You, just, you, don't, you don't believe that stuff's a metaphor? You believe it? What about this and what about that and what about the other thing? And I don't, I don't have an answer. It just seems to me that if Jesus can raise himself from the dead, he can do anything. So why is him speaking the world into existence a stretch? You, be, you believe that, that, that God just changed that, that guy. You believe that any marriage is salvageable? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, if God renews a heart and God renews and transforms a heart and renews a mind and you're a new creation and you both decide to be new and you let go of the records of wrong and rid yourself of bitterness, anger, brawling, slander, and malice and introduce grace, mercy, and forgiveness, Ephesians chapter four. I, 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 I see the parents in me sometimes too. I'm like, a, I'm, it's like a little embarrassing. It's a little old fashioned. And I think what Jesus was teaching his disciples is that everybody should be the blind guy. I don't know. The muddy miracle is the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, everybody thinks you're dumb. I don't care. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I don't care. Well, don't you think this, this is, I got my story, man. And I've heard Jesus and I've sensed Jesus and I've seen it. And I don't have all the answers and I can't explain it and I can't quote you the Bible, but I know what God did in my life. Band's going to come out, and they'll give us a little space. And I encourage you to open up your heart and mind. Spiritually blind people believe there's a different way to Christ, to God, besides salvation by grace through faith. If you've leaned into religion or tradition or your own good works, ask God to point that out to you. Maybe you need to receive the gift of Christ for the first time. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible is very clear. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, but there's always room for clarity. So being refined, seeing these things in ourselves, you might be shocked how it changes your relationship with God, how it will alter your interactions with each other. And Jesus says, this is part of what I do. I bring judgment so that the, the blind can see and those who think they can see actually realize that they're blind. Right? Jesus, help us with this. We love you. Need your help. Show it to us, God, and, and open up our hearts and our minds to what you would have us to know.
God, let us humble ourselves. Difficult. Humble ourselves before you, maybe before each other, and have you root out the cynicism, skepticism in our own hearts and replace it with a, a simple faith, a trust in you. Lord, we want to surrender to you in, in, a, in a new way, to yield to you in a fresh way. And whether it's for our salvation or it's for our sanctification, for you refining us and making us more and more like you, would you press into every aspect of our heart and mind even now, Jesus? And these still moments work in your name. Amen.